Well, we're going through the Apostles' Creed. That's our, our series called I Believe, Marching Through the Apostles' Creed, one statement at a time. The third day he rose again from the dead. That's where we're headed this morning, the question of the resurrection. Now, I say question because we're going to focus this morning, put our focus on this passage at the end of John where Thomas is talking to, to Jesus. He's there with the disciples and he's asking the question, is the Christ of faith the Jesus of Nazareth? Is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Messiah? From the Word of God, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 30. Hear God's word this morning. Would you turn there? I, I, I need to keep reminding us that we're going to go right through this passage step by step. So if you have your Bibles, open it up. Um, we need to think about maybe providing those in here if you don't have one. If you're at home, go get your Bible, open it up to John 20, starting with verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You've believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, we're going to look at five proofs for the resurrection, and then we're going to hopefully leave time to ask what lingering questions are left. Because... Uh, I know that, that many of you like apologetics and you like to have a, a, an answer for your head, but we need to consider that, that this passage is really driving us to the heart of our questions, what's at the heart of them. You don't need to wait. I know this is kind of funny. We're, this is an Easter and uh, nobody has died, uh, so why are we looking at this question of the resurrection? You, know, you, you don't want to wait until you're out at Laurel Hill to ask this question. When I go to Laurel Hill, you know, I, I know it seems like a desperate place for a lot of people, but it's a peaceful, peaceful place for me because every time I'm going there, I'm presenting not only the, the stark reality of that moment, but the truth claims of Christ. You know, Mike Colley, who died uh, last year, was on our staff, and he had a little business card that said, Jesus Christ, our only hope. And he passed those out. 
towards the end of his life, he made it indelible with everyone uh, whose path he crossed. Jesus Christ, our only hope. Now's the time to internalize, to examine, and to ask the question of the truth claims of Jesus Christ. So five proofs, and then what lingering questions? First, first proof is this. Why did Peter become a lion, having been such a lamb? The resurrection shows why. The resurrection answers these five questions. First, why Peter had this dramatic change from being a lamb to becoming a lion for the faith. It's just amazing. I mean, several people have documented this that, or made this point, that, including Paul Little, Josh McDowell, that there are people throughout history who have died for a lie. There are all kinds of people who are willing to die for a lie. But who would be willing to die for a lie that they knew was a lie? In other words, Peter was in the position to know whether or not the truth claims of Jesus, whether or not those were true. It wasn't that, that he was in some sort of cult or something like that, and he just sort of got numbed into, he got brainwashed into believing something that he wasn't in the position to know was true or false. He knew whether this was true. Who would die for a lie? And you say, well, Tim, okay, but can we trust the text? And can we trust the text? How do we know it's not legend? You know, this was the hypothesis coming out of the Enlightenment. Towards the end of the 1700s and into the 1800s, scholars began to shape their worldview by the Enlightenment. And so this whole idea of whisper down the alley or whisper down the valley became uh, sort of the order of the day in academia. The Enlightenment... The claims of the Enlightenment were that the world and reality itself is only empirical. In other words, empire or the, the things that you can taste and touch and feel and smell, right, and hear. That that was the extent of reality. That was Enlightenment thinking. And for the next hundred years, scholars began to look at Scripture through that lens. But they didn't, it turns out, have any evidence to claim that the, the text of Scripture developed as legend. In fact, to the contrary, even as, uh, as recently as around the year of my own father's birth, there have been manuscripts discovered, like P, P46, Papyrus 46 is one of the manuscripts, one of the oldest manuscripts. And it shows that Paul wrote, most scholars, very few scholars doubt this now, that Paul wrote these letters. Paul wrote most of the letters, 27 letters of the New Testament. He wrote most of them about 50 A.D. Very few people dispute that. And so these texts are reliable. And so what we come back to is, gosh, what do we do with this? I mean, for about 100 years, scholarship said, well, this is just legend, whisper down the valley. You know, it goes from one farm to the next to the next, and it changes and morphs and gets embellished and all of that. There wasn't time. There wasn't time. See, Paul's letters written in 50, 53 AD already presuppose an extant text of the gospel that there was a church and there, was, there were these truths and the Apostles' Creed was already a thing. 
So you can trust the text. What are you going to do with what change was wrought in Peter? What are you going to do with that? You know, the, the resurrection answers the question. Why did Peter go from lamb to lion? Second, Paul gave up power over to serve under. Now think about that for a minute. People give all kinds of things. Time, talent, treasure. We love to give in such a way that preserves. We love to give in, in a way that says, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'm this person in this pyramid and I'm going to do for you because it kind of, you know, there's a, there's, there, there's a selfish motive a lot of times that accompanies our giving and our benevolence. Who gives up power? No one. Nobody gives up power. Proof? America. Why did we need America? Why, you know, go watch Les Mis and look at the blood that was shed just to be able to have a voice again in government. People don't give up power. Paul gave up his power over in order to serve under. What happened? The resurrection answers the question. He was a guy who had the power to put people, to put Christians to death. Paul was in charge of the stoning of Stephen. He was standing by. He was the one, I mean, he had more authority than most people in that day. But he gave it up in order to serve. Not only did he give up power over people to put them to death, he ended up being put to death himself for this very gospel. Explain that. Well, the resurrection explains it. Third, third sort of proof here. Now, I've got a little twinkle in my eye when I'm talking about proofs, you know, because that's, this is not where we're staying in this whole sermon. We're going somewhere deeper. We're going somewhere bigger in just a minute. Because these proofs, as powerful as these are, and this is just a handful of them. I mean, there are dozens of these points that can be made. But after we're done, you're going to see, okay, well, that was nice. But let's keep trotting through these because they're still important. Paul appealed to people's own experience to make his arguments. Did you know that? Think about that for a minute. If I'm writing to you and I'm saying something like, you know, just like last week, you know how you, uh, you and I were talking about such a... If that didn't happen, then my argument just falls apart. And Paul's argument more often than not, was based on people's own experience in the things he was saying. Here's an example from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 through 8, which is, is sort of the pretext of the Apostles' Creed. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Paul's letters were public documents. As soon, Why do we have thousands of, of manuscripts? Because they were copied. As soon as, as Paul wrote a letter, first of all, he kept copies. But as soon as, as a letter, let's just say, got to, to Galatia, they would make 50 copies and they'd distribute them. These were public documents. Now, don't feel bad, but, you know, every time we make a typo, we hear from you, okay? You know that? 
we hear from you. I mean, it's like if there's a problem, if there's something that we put out there and it's not quite right, we're going to hear about it, okay? I mean, here Paul is making this claim. By the way, thank you for doing that. We want to, we want to get it right. I, this is not a criticism. We want to get it right, and we need that, that feedback. We, and every time I, I receive one, I think, I'm so glad somebody cares about this. I'm really genuine about that. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not disparaging any of that. But, but, but see the point. You see the point. I'm appealing to your own experience in what Paul's doing and appealing to their experience. You know this is true. That when people hear something that's claimed and they're in the position to know whether it's true, you're going to shoot it down. There's going to be accountability. Paul's documents were public. That's third. Fourth, the scriptures only, only Jesus' resurrection makes sense of the Old Testament. Time and time and time again, when the Jews... And the Jewish people are trying to figure out, who is this Messiah? What is he going to be like? Is he going to be a lamb? Is he going to be a lion? He's both. And Jesus had to come and walk among us, die and be raised again in order to show exactly what is being said. I mean, Psalm 118, I've gone through this, you know, last year, Psalm 118, where it talks about the, the keystone that brings the archway together has become the chief of the corner. The new church is built on the resurrection of Jesus who was rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone of a new age. What makes sense of that? They didn't know what that meant. This was Psalm 118, one of the songs that they would sing over and over again as, as they ascended up to Jerusalem not even fully appreciating that every rock of Jerusalem would be made to rubble, and yet Jesus would bring to life the church age. This is what it means. This is just one example of hundreds of examples of imagery in the Old Testament that, that makes a, a sense to a certain point, but then when you put that keystone of the resurrection into place, then you get it that Jesus didn't come to be a conquering king all at once, but a suffering servant. Psalm 110, where, you know, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, where David is saying, you know, my Lord says to, the Lord says to my Lord, you know, and, and then the question Jesus asks to the Pharisees, if, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, I mean, there, there's so many examples of this. Abraham, Abraham, a famous one, where Abraham is supposed to sacrifice Isaac, and then and then there's a ram in the thicket, and, and, and the word comes to Abraham, I will provide the lamb. Abraham, stay your hand. I will provide the lamb. And even before that, where, where Abraham, when he isn't even Abraham, he's still Abram, and he walks between the pieces to cut a covenant where two different parties entering into an agreement would go between those pieces, and, and they would say, if either of us breaks this covenant, may the one of us who breaks the covenant, who walks between the pieces, may they be broken like these pieces. And only God, only God walks between the pieces. What do you make of that? Well, the resurrection tells you what to make of it. And finally, this, just, these are just the five I picked. I, mean, I could have picked another five. The early church used the cross, the empty cross, not a crucifix, empty cross as a symbol of hope. It was intended, the Roman cross was intended to be a symbol of 
control of intimidation. They were not intimidated. Christians went to their death. Christians who were, again, in the position to know better, if they knew better, they were bold in the face of death. So much so that today, the cross, the empty cross, is a sign of hope of the resurrection, not only the death, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so these are the five, these are five proofs that I think we need to wrestle with. Each of us needs to wrestle with. You know, with the left side of your brain, all right? So there's a whole other side of your brain, right? There's a whole emotional part of us. There's a whole sort of intuitive part of us. I've talked in the past about that, how there's a rider and there's an elephant. There's a rider and there's an elephant. And the rider is sort of our reason and the elephant is, is, is sort of our intuition and, and emotion. And this is where Thomas enters in. You know, Thomas was a good friend. Of Jesus. Think of the, the handful of friends that you really have. And here he is, just he's broken by this whole, this whole brokenness of Jesus, and he is broken by it. And he's not asking about left brain truth claims. He's asking why? Just why? Why'd this happen? So let's give him a little bit of a, let's cut him some slack this morning, okay? Thomas, let's cut him some slack. I know he's, he's often sort of disparaged as uh, the doubting Thomas. But he asks an important question for us. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ of faith? C.S. Lewis says this, he says, No doctrine of faith seems to me so spectral. That means sort of waif-like or ghostly. No doctrine of faith seems so spectral, so unreal, as the one I have just successfully defended in a public debate. <laughs> you see that? I love that. See, because, you know, apologetics, I love apologetics. And when I was in, you know, senior in high school, I started to read some apologetics and think about, oh, yeah, I love, I love how this argument lays out for faith. And yet, there's no argument that can replace faith. You see? You can't take in all the, the, the whole world of arguments for the resurrection and say, oh, see, there, there you have it. Have a nice day. I love what C.S. Lewis says here. He drives us back to faith. No doctrine of faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal as the one I've just successfully defended in a public debate. And so in the remaining time, I want to ask, why, why, why do I think that it's a good thing that Thomas asked the questions he asked? And the reason is this. Asking questions is a way of putting faith to work. And like anything that is authentic, it gets better with use. Let me, let me give you an example. So I, I called Ed Titus, who is an old um, uh, combat pilot for the Navy. And I said, hey, what... what leather jacket did you wear when you were uh, in, in the service? And he told me that the type of leather jacket it was. And, it, and, and it's the kind of leather jacket that when I was, um, not a Fonzie leather jacket, okay? People, don't, don't, don't picture that. I'm talking about something that, that, something that seen combat. You're talking about something that somebody's putting on as a, as a tool. I mean, somebody who's 
wearing it day in and day out. And it's, it's just, and it gets better, doesn't it? I mean, when I was in high school, I loved these, these jackets because, um, because they just seemed so real to me. They seemed so authentic to me because, and, and they got better with age, the, the vintage quality of them, the, the, the way that they would become more supple with use. I just love that. This is a great image for faith. When we're asking questions, honest questions, our faith gets better with use. So let's spend the remaining time asking, just, just looking at two things. First, that there's a time to ask a question. And then there's a time to receive, all right? A time to ask and a time to receive. So first, a time to ask. Questions are terribly important. You know, millions of people, somebody said millions of people saw the apples falling from the trees, but only Newton asked why, right? Okay? Questions are important. They drive us to answers. Popping the question. There were a couple of young men in our congregation who popped the question this, uh, this, this summer. People don't get married without a question. You don't start the rest of your life together without a question. How do you read a book? Here's another reason why questions are so important. How do you read a book? You know I've read a book because if you pull it off my shelf, um, and some of you have asked, you know, have you read all those books? Pull one off the shelf. If it's got stuff on the margins and scribbled all the heck, then I've read it. If I've not, then it's probably just been sitting there for about 25 years, all right? How do you read a book? I, I write questions. I question the author. I'm like, really? This contradicts what you said in chapter one. Uh, I, I make notes all throughout it. How do you read a book? See, Jesus lets Thomas ask those questions. Why? Because, because when, you, when you ask a question, when you ask a question, it puts something on the table. What do you think? What do you think? If you have something between you and somebody else, how about just ignoring it for the next decade? How's that going to work? What do you think? Is that a good thing? You know, a lot of times the person who brings to the table the thing that's between you gets blamed for the problem, right? It's like, oh, you made a mess, right? No, the mess was already there, and I'm trying to deal with the mess. I'm trying to bring it to the surface. I'm trying to bring it out. It's exactly what's going on. Thomas, you say, what's him? You know, I mean... Thomas lived with Jesus for three years. I mean, wouldn't he recognize him as soon as he walked into the room? Well, uh, have, you, have you ever had a surprise party? I, I had a surprise party when I was 21, and everybody in my life came to that party. It was ridiculous. It was unbelievable. It was a total surprise. It was a college People from all over just came to my part. It was crazy. And I was looking at them going, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I can't believe you're here. And you know, it's like you kind of reach out and you, I mean, literally, I'm like, what are you doing here? Unbelievable. See? Unbelievable sometimes what happens to us. When, 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 when something tragic happens, when there's a death. Oh, it takes so, so long just to try to figure out what, what happened. You know, when I, when I show up at a place where something terrible has happened, you can tell that people are in shock sometimes. It's just like 
They don't even know what happened, even though they've been told. That's the place where Thomas found himself. And that's a place of just powerful grace where Jesus enters in and says, ask your questions. It's me. Because then he turns at the end of the passage. He turns, look back at the passage. He says, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. You've believed because you've seen. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It's kind of like he's turning to the rest of us. And he's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What say ye? These are the truth claims of Jesus. What say you? So is it good to put things on the table? Jesus is saying yes. You've got something, you've got a question, then it's good to deal with those questions. See, Thomas is speaking full of emotion. He's with them. Eight days later, he's like, don't, you know, talk to the hand. And then eight days later, he's with the, that's where we have to see this. He is with the rest of the disciples. Where should you ask your questions? Here. Not out there. Not somewhere else. Not off by yourself. Continue to show up. Continue to be in. Otherwise, it's not really, somebody said, otherwise, it's not fair. You know, the world has all kinds of experiences and all kinds of answers right? But if you're going to ask tough questions, and you need to be around people who have asked them too. That's where Thomas found himself. He put it on the table. So there's a time to ask. Second, there's a time to receive. And then we're finished. What we learn when we ask an honest question is that God is ahead of us. He's waiting for us. He's been waiting for us to ask that question and to meet us at our deepest point of need. That's the answer that the resurrection gives. Think of the way that uh, children begin to recognize their parents. Those of you who are young parents, you're experiencing this in the last season. You know, you're, you're just waiting for them. These, all these, we have, how many babies did we have? We've lost count how many babies our congregation has had. Our congregation, you know what I'm saying, never mind. Yeah, we've, had, we've had couples in our congregation who've had many babies, and, and they're just waiting for that moment where they're looking at that baby, and they're looking back at them, and they're, they're giving an expression. That it's, it's a genuine smile. It's not gas, right? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's actually a smile, and there's a recognition, you see? This is where, this is where Thomas finds himself. Thomas is trying to catch up with his eyes. Jesus is way ahead of him, as he is ahead of you. You see, if we're going to ask a question, though, we have to ask an honest question. Kierkegaard, Christian philosopher, he said this, one can ask to receive the desired fullness of an answer, but some people ask without any interest in the answer except to suck out the apparent content by means of the question and leave an emptiness behind. When somebody comes onto my blog or somebody engages me on, on social media in order to leave an emptiness behind, I know it just like that. It takes about a nanosecond for me to see whether this is an honest question or whether somebody's already settled their doubt in their mind. They're stiff-arming me, God, the universe, and they just simply want to tear things down. Are you asking an honest question? Because Chesterton says it this way. He says... Merely having an open mind is nothing. We need to be open, right? We need to ask questions. That's good. But the object of an open mind, like an open mouth, he's so funny. 
<laughs> the object of an open mind, like an open mouth, is in order to close again on something solid, right? That's the point of asking a question. It's, it's to find what we really need. And what, what the resurrection says is at the deepest point of need, we, we, we desperately need to know that history, that, that the past, present, and future is meaningful. That it's going somewhere. That, that, that God is able to enter into our brokenness and make sense of it and to redeem the day. That's the point of the resurrection, that it actually happened, that there's an actual Lord waiting for us, that, there is a, that there's a kingdom in our midst that's already been started. That fire has started, and he's going to be fanning it into flame from here on out. That, that the things that you think are really meaningful are really meaningful, not just because you have a preference for them, that there are actual, there's an actual difference between values and principles, you know, uh, you know, a, a band of thieves ha, has values, but are there principles that really line up for time and eternity? Is there a right and a wrong? The resurrection answers all of that. And without the resurrection, there's none of it. Let me close with this little story about how, how God is there, how he's there meeting us at our deepest point of need to bring us into our greatest hope. Richard Seltzer was a surgeon. He wrote a book reflecting on his experience with his patients. He, he describes one bedside conversation after operating on a young woman to remove a tumor in her cheek. And it was necessary, he says, to sever this one little nerve, which Seltzer describes as leaving her with a twisted, clownish smile. He says this, her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say, it will. It, it is because a nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her their kiss still works. I hold my breath and let wonder in. Jesus came, twisted himself to our very need. Not only the need to substitute himself on the cross, but the very need of human history to rise again and bring meaning and hope to all of life. Let's pray together. God, how we thank you that you're equal to our need yesterday, today, and tomorrow.
bless us to receive from you and you alone at our deepest point of need. In Jesus' name, amen.